The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining me again. So glad to have you back with me. I hope that you are safe and well. Thank you so much for all your shares and comments the past few weeks. I really appreciate it. And thanks for supporting the show. Remember, if you can um, and want to get some extra goodies, become a member of Pop Culture Confidential Premium at popcultureconfidential.supportingcast.fm. Today, I have a really, really great writer with me. He's a five-time BAFTA winner, and maybe more importantly, it turns out that we named our sons after the same movie that meant a lot to us, but more about that later. Jack Thorne can seemingly effortlessly move between genres, from social realism to the absolutely magical. He co-wrote with Shane Meadows, This is England, 86. He wrote the TV series National Treasure. He wrote the script for the smash hit stage show, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on the West End and Broadway. Recently, he adapted HBO's His Dark Materials and wrote the movie The Aeronauts, starring Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones, and The Secret Garden, starring Colin Firth. Now, he's written Netflix's upcoming series The Eddie, directed by Oscar winner Damien Chazelle of La La Land and Whiplash, and with music by Glenn Ballard. He's the legendary songwriter and producer of, among others, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, Shakira, Michael Jackson, and so many more. The Eddie is premiering on Netflix May 8th, and it's set in and around a Paris jazz club. Elliot, played by Andre Holland of Moonlight, is a talented jazz pianist from New York City and the owner of the Paris club. He's struggling to keep the business afloat with his relationship to the lead singer of the house band and with his wayward daughter, Julie, played by Amanda Stenberg. Mr. Jack Thorne, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So before I get started, I hope you don't think I'm a stalker or anything, but there's something personal that I found out. Um, we both have named our sons the same name after the same movie. Oh, wow. Rambo. No, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I wanted to know, uh, Elliot it is after E.T., I wanted to know why and what, what the movie means to you. Um, uh, so I was quite a weird kid. Uh, I wasn't very good at uh, um, dealing with friends and dealing with society generally. And then um, I saw this film that was about a boy who couldn't quite work out how to belong either. And he had an extraterrestrial friend. Um, and uh, it just meant so much to me that uh, that there was a, a friendship out there in the galaxy, maybe for me. And um, uh, aside from all the beautiful uh, storytelling and the incredible choices that were made in that film, I just loved the, that central sentiment. Yeah, that was the same for me. We moved around a lot and, and there was something about the fact that it doesn't really matter where you move. There is someone out there for me. Yeah. Uh, what about as a writer? What did the movie mean to you? You know, uh, as I think a lot of people have said before, it's the greatest film about divorce ever made. Um, and the way that she manages to tell that story and the way that she manages to capture the truth of that family whilst also dealing with all the other forces that she had to, you know, the, the when you do genre, you know, the constant battle is getting enough character in, the constant battle is not being overwhelmed by all the other stuff that you've got to deal with. And um, and she does it so elegantly. She's such an amazing writer. She's such a sad loss. Yes. Uh, I, I came very close to meeting her. Um, oh, really? Uh, my agent uh, had arranged for me to have lunch with her um, and then she had to cancel her trip and, and she died quite soon after. Um, We're talking uh, about Melissa. Yeah, Melissa Matheson. Yeah. So most people know it's a Spielberg movie, but Melissa Matheson wrote it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So my son, Elliot, and I, we took a weekend trip and we saw your Harry Potter production. Ah, it was cool. a fantastic weekend um, and, and just an incredible four hours. Um, and that's also about a kid who's alone and a magical element. So this is a theme for you. Absolutely. Um, the, the, uh, I said to J.K. Rowling right at the beginning of the process that uh, one of the things I'd really like to do is I'd like to write um, a story about someone who didn't have a very good time going to Hogwarts. Um, that, that, that felt like an important thing to throw into the Harry Potter galaxy. It's such an incredible world and it was so incredible to be given the opportunity to dance in it for a little bit. But, but that thing of just going, you know, I don't think Hogwarts is for everyone. I mean, it's not for Draco either. Um, and, uh, and so telling Scorpius and Albus's story felt um, very exciting for me for that reason and for lots of other reasons too. Was this a theme, was it difficult for you in school? Uh, not like more difficult than for anyone else I don't think. I wasn't you know horrendously bullied or anything like that. The the stuff that I dealt with was much more uh, passive aggressive than that. Um, I just didn't know how to do it. I just felt ill at ease the entire time. Um, the, um, literally our first conversation when JK and John Tiffany and I sat in a room was about how difficult it was being 10 and I said about having the um, accidentally buying on the same weekend the same coat 
as um, another much more popular kid at the school oh. and, uh, and realising that I was going to be stuck in that coat that he wore far better than me and that everyone assumed that I copied from him for the next year because my mum couldn't afford to buy me another coat. Of course she couldn't. And just that sort of heart sinking where you walk into the playground and you realise that that's, that's sort of your destiny. Um, and it's things like that that were, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, rather than sort of, you know. That's interesting because I just read that you, um, something you wrote that when you develop a script, you always look for the story's soul. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting that it's a maybe a bit of another soul than that JK was when she wrote it? Yes, though I would say that it's all there in that final chapter of the book, you know, that that Albus, Albus's awkwardness um, and Albus's struggle with his identity is all there in the final chapter and she fed so much of that. So I I think it was also something that she was very excited to to write about and explore. And I feel that you're a fellow nerd, so I just have to give you a tip that if you haven't seen the Goonies reunion that was on are you probably I have I have I have have, and it was of course wasn't it wonderful absolutely that moment when Sean Astin did Mikey's um sky speech I was just tingling literally tingling it was glorious and they sounded exactly the same yeah I know I know well he I mean he did this incredible thing where he just raised his voice up when he did that speech yeah and obviously they put music underneath it but he raised his voice up to be Mikey again it was just like wow yes Mikey back yeah we were all 10 again (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely so is it a coincidence that it's Elliot in Eddie as well um not really uh, so he had a different name and, um, and then we were scouting around for a name that felt better and, uh, and I suggested a few and my wife and I have been struggling to have a child. We'd, we'd done like four rounds of IVF and to be honest, I never thought we were going to do it. And, um, we'd always decided this was going to be the name of our child. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sort of did the dirty on it. I, uh, I sort of gave it as a possible character na- name to Damien and Alan. And they both went, yeah, that's the one. He's called Elliot. And from then on, uh, it was sort of like, oh, two Elliots in my life. Um, uh, he is spelt with one T. My son is spelt with two Ts. So I sort of hope that that's sufficient distance. A little change, <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course it isn't, but you know, yeah. And, and I have to say how wonderful that after so many, I have so many in my life who have gone through what you've gone through, that it worked out after so many tries. Thank you. Um, but back to the project. Now, this project is, Eddie, it started with the music, which I think, if, if I understand correctly, can you explain? Yes. So uh, it was um, exciting uh, that uh, it started with Glenn Ballard um, uh, taking a CD of tracks and an idea to Alan Paul. And the idea was um, at American Jazz Club in Paris. And, and then he said, and the, this is the songs that the band is going to play. And the songs were incredible. Uh, Alan was really intrigued by the idea. He'd seen Damien's uh, short whiplash um, at Sundance the previous year. And so he said, might this be something you want to partner on? Damien was totally up for that. Um, And then they were looking for a writer and I got involved then. Having the songs was really exciting because they were not directional. You know, it's it's not like having the songs in a musical where... You're, you've got the heart of someone, um, you know, uh, where they sing about wanting, you know, a new dress or a, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, or some hair or whatever they want. Yeah, that gives it, you it, a, a direction for the story. Yes, exactly. 
these were inspirational rather than directional. These, these were sort of like a glimpse into what might lie beneath the person that composed them, Elliot, uh, but they weren't a sort of like, and this is what he feels and this is what he does. I, I loved it. And, the, and, the, and listening to the songs over and over again was just a joy through the process. You've said, which sounds extremely unsexy, but that this is really about urban planning. Yes. <laughs> Please yeah. explain. Uh, so I'm, I'm a Londoner at the moment. Uh, I didn't grow up a Londoner, but I am one now. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, and I taught, uh, I used to be a teacher and I taught in South London uh, near this place called the Ellsbury Estate. And the Ellsbury Estate was, be, the, the, the idea was to knock it down um, because the building wasn't a very good one. But the residents campaigned against it. And the reason why the residents campaigned against it is because they were aware that it was, it was uh, a lot of it was social housing and they were aware that they were going to be moved out of London. Um, and eventually the building was knocked down and they were moved out of London. And it's something that I've noticed happening more and more in London. And I've also seen it in New York. Um, that thing of uh, a city becoming more and more of an exclusive place. Uh, Paris is way ahead of that because it's got this ring road um, that runs around what is the jewellery box at the centre. Um, and so you've got these sprawling suburbs uh, where the infrastructure is very limited, um, uh, where, where not enough thought has been put into how people live in the areas and where people live basically to commute into Paris and do the jobs that the Parisians in their very expensive apartments aren't prepared to do. Um, so you've sort of got a two-tier uh, social structure and it felt like if we were going to examine Paris, that was something that I was really interested in, the sort of melting pots of lots of ethnicities and ideas and class um, that's occurring on the edge of the city. And jazz, obviously, is a melting pot of ideas and it, it felt like the two of them confused um, really beautifully together. And another theme of an American in Paris and American jazz yep. musicians in Paris. I, I just recently, what did I see? Oh, yeah. Quincy Jones documentary. He was in Paris in the 50s and just the whole music yep. and what that meant to him afterwards and things like that. Did you study um, American musicians in, in France and, and look at that, those kind of tropes and... Absolutely. And, and the African-American experience in, in Paris in particular, um, you know, and, uh, and not just jazz musicians. Uh, James Baldwin famously made his home there uh, with those wonderful books he wrote. Um, and, and so, yes, that was another question to get involved in. And, and actually, the longer the drama um, went on, uh, the more that Andre and Amandla led me towards those questions and um, and really put them front and foremost in the drama. What were some of the things that you you know you found or that that interested you there? Just that central question of identity and finding your identity in a place where there isn't the same history and heritage. So there's an opportunity to um, remake and rebrand and own um identity in a totally different way you mentioned um damien chazelle before i mean he seems to have some kind of a musical genius in his directing from his first short film to whiplash to la la land how did you see this in when he started directing the first two episodes there oh it was glorious and he is a glorious glorious director and uh 
um, yeah, his obviously his knowledge of music is huge. Um, it's no surprise to me that he's a drummer um, from how he edits. You know that there's a rhythm uh, pulsing through the whole thing. Um, we wanted to do some strange things with rhythm in this show, um, and having someone as confident as him to lead that was, uh, you know, such a brilliant thing. It was, you know, he's he's an amazing guy, and it was a real honor to work with him. So you worked both with rhythm in the story as well as the musical part. Exactly, exactly. That you know that we're playing odd games with how television is told. And um, and we're doing it quite deliberately, and it's a bit scary, but um, hopefully, hopefully it's provocative. And he also grew up in Paris, right? So he yeah, backwards and forwards. He did quite a lot of backwards and forwards during his uh, childhood. And you, you, you seem to effortlessly um, move between genres at the drop of the hat. I mean, there's social realism and and Potter and his dark materials, and and this is England, and you've written a play about your parents' sort of political left. Is there a common denominator? Uh, um, uh, I mean, I, I think fantasy and social realism have an awful lot to do with each other. And I think that the bits of fantasy that I'm really attracted to are the ones that are grounded in a sort of social realism. So I think it's probably all social realism just told through different lenses. Um, I, I think that central question of how we can save the world is very interesting to me because I can't work it out. Um, and sometimes if you're a writer, you can write it and hope that you find it in a different way. Um, but yeah, that, 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 those, that sort of thing of like, how do we help? How do we make things better? Uh, is something that I'm always intrigued by. Uh, not in a sort of like, I want to preach about it, just in a sort of like, I want to examine it, work it out and, and try and see all sides of it. The best writers, like we were talking about, Melissa and, and, and yourself as well, can really find that even in the most magical genres. That's very kind to get even compared to her. I'm very grateful for that comparison. One other thing that, that you write about a lot is friends. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm constantly writing best friends. I, I, and I think that relationship, uh, particularly if you're a loner and you've got just one other friend, is such an intense almost romantic relationship uh doesn't have to be sexual but just that feeling of like wanting someone to share everything you are doing um and uh and um i'm always intrigued by that and always uh you know and uh the eddie has a, a big element of that in terms of this these two men at the center of it who were best friends we think from a very young age and um and who never do you know what I mean like you know never you know never lost that feeling of uh, codependency right and you also have the the music in the band uh, preparing for this I was just at the same time watching the new Beastie Boys documentary I don't know if you've seen that but oh well it's by Jones yeah, yeah, yeah. it made me so jealous <laughs> it's you know one of those stories of people who meet when they're 13 14 and then make this incredible history together and just these friends who, you know, and I was thinking you have that musical element in Eddie as well, sort of the band. Yeah, and, and, and the truth is, all of them are quite lost individually, but um, put them all together and they make sense. Yeah, that was something we were, we were always returning to through it. And, and the, while we were, um, when we were dancing away from the central story in terms of, you know, each of these episodes is helmed by a different character that, that that's, um, that telling that felt very um, 
you know, through the character of Jude or through the character of Katrina, how much they needed this band um, uh, felt very important. Do you need a band? Do you have, to, or as a writer, can, are you fine being very solitary? I'm okay being very solitary. Um, I like my wife a lot and <laughs> I like good. my child a lot. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, the, um, a few friends said about this, you know, being in lockdown, you're the person I would expect to have least trouble with it. It doesn't really, yeah, no, it just sort of washes over me. Yeah, no, uh, uh, you know, I like Zoom. Zoom is very good. Uh, but um, but uh, yeah, no, I don't really miss being in a crowd. Right. No. Um, what is your process like? I know that this may have been before your um, son, but you really worked seven days a week round the clock, right? Yes. Is it still that way? I did. No, no, sadly not. He needs to do too much stuff. Uh, you know, after I talk to you, I'm going down for a phonics class with him. Uh, you know, uh, uh, this morning we were doing um, cosmic yoga, uh, you know, that we, um, yeah, and we built uh, we built cars and and television sets and all that kind of stuff in the last few weeks. Oh, my no God. One. What kind of a dad are you? You're giving me. <laughs> You're just, I'm not building any TV sets with my five-year-old here in the Oh, it's a cardboard belly set. It's just so that he okay. can sit inside, it. and he does, and he does sit inside it. You know, no, it's not. Um, there's no, there's nothing good about it. It's rubbish. Okay, well, but uh, but, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I love. Uh, yeah, it's fun making stuff with him. Yeah. Uh, you said that you're fine in in the lockdown, but something that hasn't been great is that you've probably actually had COVID nineteen. Probably. Yeah. Who knows? Are you feeling I mean, okay now? I'm feeling totally fine now. Yeah, if our government was half decent, I'd have an answer as to whether I did or not. You know, I'm the least of the worries in this mess of a country. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your reaction to England's response and and uh, what you think will happen post Corona. Oh, who knows what will happen? I mean, there's currently all this stuff going on on Twitter about getting behind our government, and it's like, no, we need to question them because they've messed it up. And every time we provoke them, and that 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 things have changed. You know, the lack of PPE is a disgrace. The fact that they messed up ventilators, they've, uh, you know, they've they've just this. Th- th- there is there is a there is a malaise at the heart of that government that's really really worrying. You know, and the fact that Boris didn't go to those um cobra meetings whatever they say about well he wasn't expected to and it's like when he went on holiday instead and uh he is the leader of our country and he should have been in those meetings and uh and the fact he wasn't uh until march until march when it was that serious is really really concerning well uh the whole world is pretty concerning at the moment so let's just hope that we get out of this somewhat decently um, all of us, but I'm happy that you're feeling better. Really, am. yes, no, I completely agree. Um, another thing that you recently wrote, I think it was last year, is you wrote a movie about Marie Curie. Um, and yeah. I was wondering if studying her and her sort of pioneering research and, and if it's made you think anything about the people and what's happening now and, and people trying to come up with... Um, uh, vaccines and cures and 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 what it gave you i mean marie curie was operating at a time when 
the scientific establishment wasn't welcoming to new ideas. So she was really operating in isolation. You know, she had four four years with a with a bathtub to um, to find radium and polonium. Uh, I don't know. I hope science isn't like that now. But but you know, she was she had a bloody mindedness that was completely awe inspiring. She took a thread of something and she realised there was there was answers in there that she needed to understand. Um, uh, you know, I don't. I, I hope there's people like Marie Curie there out there. She was a true, true genius. So, and we certainly do need geniuses right now. And now, if I'm not misinformed, you're you're adapting Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, not really yet. No, that's a future project. Okay, yeah. but that seems daunting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. I've, I've done um, Christmas Carol for the stage, um, uh, and uh, love. Charles Dickens but yeah no I I um uh Tale of Two Cities is very very complicated but but beautiful you've been called the modern Dickens that was a very nice thing someone said once yes yes I, th- I think you I think you just let soak that in <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine yeah um Thank you so much for taking your time to talk about this there's so many interesting projects and and um I really appreciate it Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. I really, really thank you. It's very kind. Thank you so much to Jack Thorne. The Eddie is premiering on Netflix on May 8th. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, rate and review the show. It really helps others to find us. And if you can, become a member of Pop Culture Confidential Premium and help support the show. That's at popcultureconfidential.supportingcast.fm. See you next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.